Welcome to the Books and Arts Podcast. I'll be with you in a moment after a brief word from our sponsor. Regardless of party or political labels, there are amazing examples of real-life success stories happening across America. Local leaders are showing how to solve problems in healthcare, education, and other issues Washington just can't fix. Experience those stories in the new book, Falling in Love with America Again, by Jim DeMint and the Heritage Foundation. Get it today at inlovewithamerica.com. That's inlovewithamerica.com. Hello, this is uh, Philip Terzian, the Literary Weekly Standard, and I'm here for our weekly podcast on the Books and Arts section for the March 24th edition of the Standard. And as usual, I think it's an interesting and varied section, which I, I know that readers will enjoy. We have a wonderful review, well, not wonderful, it's an interesting review of a book about the Ukrainian famine in the early 1930s caused by Stalin's collectivization and how it wasn't really covered by the press of the day, which will, even though it's an 80-year-old story, it will strike a modern uh, chord with readers. We have a fine piece about a, a new anthology from the Oxford University Press of poetry of the First World War, probably the last major war to produce some major poetry. A review by John Podhoritz, no review this week, but a book review of a book called Five Came Back, a story of Hollywood and the Second World War about um, five famous directors in Hollywood, from George Stevens to John Ford and so on, who uh, answered the call of duty after Pearl Harbor and went to work for the film units of the Army and Navy and produced some very famous movies and documentary footage from the Second World War. And finally, a essay about uh, Janie Taylor, the principal ball uh, ballerina of the New York City Ballet, who just retired a month or so ago, and the essay is by a, a young woman who herself has been a ballerina in the New York City Ballet, but is now also uh, no longer dancing, but fortunately is now writing, and writing a very interesting piece on Janie Taylor. But I'm delighted this week to welcome uh, our very own Terry Eastland, who's the author of the lead review in the section this week which is a book, um, it's from the University of Press of Mississippi, which means it's a, an interesting and well-produced volume, but because it's a respectable academic uh, uh, house, may not get quite the attention it deserves in the marketplace, and so that's why I asked Terry Eastland to write about it. The book is called The Nominee, A Political and Spiritual Journey by Leslie Southwick, and the name Leslie Southwick may not be a household name, but it's an interesting name, and he's written an interesting book. Um, and, of course, Terry Eastland, who, apart from being one of our, well, probably my most distinguished colleague, uh, has uh, spent time in the Justice Department and, of course, writes frequently for us on legal and judicial matters. Terry, who is Leslie Southwick? Phil, thank you for that kind introduction. Leslie Southwick is a federal judge now. Uh, he is the, he was the nominee, as he has titled uh, his book. He is 63, maybe now 64 years old. He was uh, born in uh, South Texas, actually on the very edge of the border with Mexico. He grew up in South Texas. Uh, he went to the to, to Rice University and then to the University of Texas Law School. And after that experience. He clerked, he ended up clerking uh, on the 
uh, United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Now, the Fifth Circuit, for those uh, who are not lawyers out there, the Fifth Circuit encompasses three states, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas, and appeals from the district courts in those states go through the appellate court, which is located in New Orleans. That's where the court sits. And in any case, there are 17 judges now, I believe it is, on that court, and Leslie Southwick is one of them. And this book is interesting. The book is titled The Nominee because it is his own autobiographical account of his time uh, trying to become the nominee. He was extremely ambitious in this regard in a way that you rarely find someone, I think, so ambitious. And he's quite open about it in the book. Uh, it took him many years to become the nominee as he, as he details in the book. But his timing was probably not impeccable. I was thinking he was... He was nominated in 2007, I think, That's which correct. would be exactly 20 years after the nomination of Judge Robert Bork to the U.S. Supreme Court. And just as had occurred then, uh, in 2006, the Democrats retook the Senate, I think. And so when Judge Southwick's nomination came up in 2007, I guess it's fair to say that Senate Democrats were feeling their oats to some degree and ran, so Judge Southwick ran into some roadblocks. Well, your your memory is impeccable, Phil. Uh, that is correct. I think uh, the Democrats uh, were in control of the Senate in 2007, having been placed in control in the previous election that fall. Uh, and that is similar to what happened with Robert Bork in 1986-1987. I would go a little bit further, and this is outside of the review, but I would just say that the Bork nomination still resonates today. That nomination was the nomination, I think, of of, of really the last 50 years in American politics in terms of its decisive uh, implications. And uh, it's interesting because the fight over the Supreme Court um, has, has uh, been with us ever since, the fight for every vacancy uh, and who's going to fill it uh, and whether it will gain Senate approval. These questions are now uh, more at the top, if you will, of our politics than they ever have been. The other thing that's interesting, though, about the 80s, and I should just note this because it's relevant to the story that Leslie Southwick tells, is that it was really not until the 80s, I think, uh, with President Reagan's attempt to appoint uh, to the court more judicial conservatives and appoint to the lower courts more judicial conservatives, that we see the labor, uh, excuse me, the lower courts become so contested as they have. And this is a constant story. It's a story with the current administration, a Democratic one, just as it was with the Bush administration, a Republican one. Well, that's right. You know, we were, before we started recording, actually, uh, Terry and I were briefly talking about Dean Acheson, and I was just thinking that one of the highlights of his career was in 1939, and of course we, we are talking about the Supreme Court, but Felix Frankfurter was appointed to the Supreme Court, and this was a sensational event. It was a hugely controversial appointment by President Roosevelt, and so controversial, in fact, that there was one day of hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and Dean Acheson, was Frank, who had been Frankfurter's student, served as his the council at his elbow during the hearings, but this was an immensely contentious appointment um, in 1939, and yet it, it amounted to one day of, of, of uh, full and vigorous <laughs> debate, but uh, compare that to where we are now where these nominations are made, and it's usually months 
pass by before we even get to the uh, hearing phase. Well, that, that, that's a good point, uh, and, and perhaps I should go back to Leslie Southwick's story, because the reason um, that he wanted to become a, an appellate judge, uh, he writes in his book, is that he was inspired to do so by the judge that he clerked for. He, judge, he clerked for a judge by the name of, of Charles Clark, and Charles Clark was nominated by President Nixon to the Fifth Circuit and uh, I believe it was in October, in fact I have the date here, it was October 7th of 1969. He was nominated on that day and eight days later he was confirmed by unanimous consent, which means basically that the Senate just agrees that he's going to be uh, approved and they don't even take a vote. And so this is extraordinary, uh, the, the ease with which nominees would get through even certainly to the, uh, to the lower courts, if not the Supreme Court. There, there had started to be some trouble, as your example shows, even, even earlier back in the New Deal, but more so in the modern period. But I would say with regard to his ambition, uh, he wants to be like Charles um, uh, Clark. He wants to sit on the Fifth Circuit. And there's an opening in 1991 that he begins to pursue. Uh, he's a Republican, the president's Republican, and, and yet he doesn't become the nominee in 91. And of course then, Bill Clinton becomes the president, and there's really no opportunity to, to have a Democrat appointing a Republican lawyer for a, for a vacancy during those years. So when, when George uh, Bush is elected in 2000, he sees another possibility because now you have a Republican president in office. And finally, he gets the nomination in 2007. The problem is, as you pointed out, the Senate happens to be held by Democrats, and the worst time to be a nominee, and in fact Southwick relates this in his book, the worst time to be a nominee is when the President nominates you and the Senate is of the party opposite from yours and the President's. And that has happened um, several times recently, we've seen with various presidencies, and always, regardless of the politics, regardless of the party, uh, that is a slow period for getting someone actually confirmed in the Senate. Well, and I suppose, I mean, to be frank, I suppose Judge Southwick is, um, he writes about his ambition to be on the, the appellate court, perhaps even someday the Supreme Court. I, 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 I dare suggest that a fair number of ambitious young lawyers probably share the same ambition but aren't perhaps honest enough to write about it as he does. I think that's, that's, that's an observation that's probably correct. Um, I was, in fact, reading this book, Phil, I thought to myself, you know, if, 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 he, if, if only the Senate Judiciary Committee could have known that he had all these notes. I mean, one of the extraordinary things about this book and what gives it, uh, actually makes it quite appealing, is that um, uh, Southwick uh, kept notes about his quest to become the nominee. This goes back to 1991. Uh, he kept notes, he kept letters, he kept records, everything under the sun that was relevant. Just imagine a room in your house that had all your files in it <laughs> on something. Well, that's what he did. Now, how many prospective judges actually do that? I think very few of them do. Uh, they could produce some records, perhaps, but he kept everything. He would even go to his computer and write down notes about a phone call he had. I mean, this is how committed he was to getting the position, but also to having a recording of it. Uh, and and this is actually what gives this an authentic, uh, it authenticates this account in a way that uh, otherwise might not be possible. Well, and presumably there's probably some lucky law school or university or presidential library that will someday be the recipient of all those filing cabinets and lawyers, because it is a 
it is an interesting saga and I guess what's kind of horrifying in a way too is that Judge Southwick was ultimately confirmed and has been on the Fifth Circuit for the last six or seven years as far as I know as a perfectly distinguished jurist but in the end it all came down to one vote from one Democratic senator on the Judiciary Committee. That's correct. The Democrats again held the Senate. This is 2007. Uh, and it turns out that they, uh, the way they created the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, the Democrats had a 10 to 9 edge, 10 Democrats to 9 Republicans on that particular committee. So in order for him to be voted out of committee onto the floor where there would be a, a vote on the nomination, in order for that to happen, he needed to pick up one Democrat. And it looked bleak. Uh, he looked at every possibility on that committee. He met with people. Uh, and it looked as though he was not going to get through. But yet, when he visited with Senator Feinstein, there seemed to be some light that he could see at the end of the tunnel. She <laughs> seemed friendly, open. And indeed, she finally told him that she was willing to support him, but not before he clarified <laughs> but not before he clarified his position with regard to a racial slur that had been uttered in a case by someone that the Employee Appeals Board in Mississippi had failed to fire on account of using that slur. And not to get into the legalisms of all of this, Phil, but uh, the fact of the matter is is that th this is not some racial slur that he, uh, he made, that he wrote himself or said himself, or that he uh, in any way countenanced in, in the... In, in, in a case in which he did not even write the opinion for the Mississippi Appeals Court. He was, and I should back up here, he was a Mississippi Appeals Court judge for 12 years. And so she just wanted clarification as to this, so he writes this letter, and uh, it satisfies her, and he picks up the vote. I think the extraordinary thing that happened here is that uh, I don't think that Senator Reid uh, uh, was quite aware that he didn't have the votes in committee. I think there was an expectation that in committee he would lose, and that would be the end of it. But lo and behold, he's voted out of committee, and on the floor, he finally triumphs. But not before filibuster. No, I do. Well, no, I do remember it was a it was a, a minor sensation when Senator Feinstein broke ranks with the party, and and I suspect she paid a small cost uh, to do the right thing by Judge Southwick. But it's a fascinating story, and and on such seeming trivialities, uh, great things hang, and uh, it's a wonderful book, a great review, and I thank you very much, Terry Eastland, for coming to talk to me about it. That was great. Thanks, Phil.